Welcome back to Everything is Public Health. I'm MJ. And I'm Cass. So I went back home for the early half of December, which is nice, but it's weird to go back home as an adult. We mentioned this in the Christmas fireside chat episode because the dynamic is different because now you're also an adult like your parents <laughs> instead of a child. So you start noticing differences in living habits. I don't know if you have this feeling. Yeah, I think, you know, things that I saw my parents do when I was younger, some of them I do around the house and other things I'm like, why did they do that? That's <laughs> yeah. that's weird or that's silly or whatever. And so I've formed my own habits as an individual, but then James and I obviously have some habits that we've developed as a couple. So then when I go home, I'm like, why do you why do you do that? That's okay. That's So weird. anyway, I am somewhat of a minimalist while my parents lean more on keeping everything because they're like oh you never know when you need a type why are you dying of laughter <laughs> it's literally me and james i'm like why do we need this we should get rid of everything and james is like you never know when you might need a thing so that dynamic is in the same household <laughs> yes and then I'll, i you know i'll say we need to get rid of a thing and then one time I'll say, oh, I need such and such. Let me run to the store. And James is like, well, but wait, I have it in the basement or I have it in the garage. And then it just like feeds his need to keep everything. My dad likes to keep stuff too, which is sweet, but also like there's a lot of clutter. Do you think it's a generational thing? Because that's one of my theory is that our parents' generation are the type of like, oh, you never know. You just keep it. Do you think so? I think that might contribute to it also. I know my dad moved around a lot when they were younger. And so it was like, you know, purging things that they didn't need for the move. Right. And so maybe as he got older, he wanted to retain more of his stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, his kids are pretty awesome, too. So he's got stuff from when we were younger, which is really sweet. I think I said before he has a booklet that I wrote in the third grade about Harriet Tubman which is still funny to think about. James is, I guess he's he's older than I am, but I wouldn't put him- He's not him, that much like, older. He's not like yeah. that old. And I think his thing is, he was a Boy Scout and he's always like, you know, always be prepared, keep things around because they might be useful. And so while I am, hey, let's recycle a thing, give away a thing, Donate, whatever, whatever, we don't need yeah. it anymore. And James wants to retain more of those things. Yeah. So anyway, I came home and I saw some clutter and I wanted to clean some things out. Uh, long story short, we ended up shredding a bunch of outdated documents, most of them health insurance related, uh, folders and folders of them. I'm talking about like after we shredded in multiple trash bags of shredded paper from like wow. documents that are literally of no use because they're so old. And my mom keeps a pretty good record of these bills and insurance claims and stuff. She said, because this is to better deal with the insurance company, if they say there's an issue, we can say, here you go, we have proof that you did send it to us. Like we actually got it, or here's a proof that we actually sent it to you. And she does a lot of phone calls and haggling with insurance uh, while we're going up. Like she's very good at that. Yeah. So that's why we, we ended up having these boxes of like health insurance documents. Are you the type to keep like good records of things like this? Yes, I was like, I have file cabinets of some of this stuff from when I was younger. But then when most things went digital and sort of being able to go into my chart or whatever and be able to access different things, accessing my insurance portal, I am too trusting that everything is mm -hmm. is available online probably. And I'm, I can't tell you the number of things I shred every week because I'm like, oh, this is a report. I went to the doctor for X and my insurance company gives me a thing. This is what your doctor's allowed to charge you. So when the bill comes through from the doctor, if they match, then I pay it and shred it. Like I don't keep it around. Yeah. So I think I'm kind of similar. I only keep stuff that I know that, oh, I might need this in the future. But if it's just like whatever, I tend to throw it away. So as I was shredding, 
all these documents, I'm thinking to myself, my mom had the tenacity and organization to fight their insurance companies when issues arose. But you know, what about people who can't fight their insurance companies uh, either because they're busy or they just have other things to do? And there's so much paperwork, which reminded me of all the issues of our healthcare system and thus this episode. So we did one about the US healthcare system a while back. Do you remember? I do remember. It was a long time ago, but I wanted to say something about sort of your mom's commitment to organizing these things. I remember remember this was in the before times my dad had come out to visit and he was having a health issue we went to urgent care they said oh we think it's this you really need to go to the emergency department okay so we went to the emergency department they were like oh no you don't have that you know you're fine you're discharged whatever so my dad got a letter from the insurance company that said you went to urgent care and then you went to the emergency department there's nothing wrong with you you need to pay the entire emergency department bill sounds like insurance yeah but my dad had the documentation from urgent care that referred him. Which I'm sure the insurance company did also, but they were trying to yeah, wiggle their way course, out of it. Of course. But he was able to show, no, I have documentation that said they thought I had this thing. Right here it says you must go to the emergency department immediately for treatment or you might die. Yeah. And so then they ended up paying it. But so things like that are important to be able to push back against. Yes. But again, it comes back to do you have the agency to be able to do that and advocate for yourself? That is exactly my point. Insurance company do this constantly because from their perspective, they want to nickel and dime people because it saves them money. And that's ultimately what a business is supposed to do. Which is just such a effed up model. <laughs> you see how much control I had of myself there? I said yeah. effed up yeah. model. When we're thinking about the ACA passed and it said- it's been a while, but yeah. You know, X cents of every dollar have to actually go to actual care. And it was like, what, 78 cents yeah. or maybe it jumped up to 80 something cents. It's crazy like to think you're paying all of these insurance premiums. For overhead. Not just overhead, lining the pockets of folks who are running these companies. Yes, absolutely. And it's it's like the, we have the wrong business model to provide health care for people. Yeah, for sure. And that is exactly what we're going to get into today. So in the previous episode, we talked about all the ways our healthcare system sucked. Like we spend the most amount of money, total and per capita, but we still have some of the worst metrics. Revisit that episode if you want to hear all the terrible metrics that we have. Today, we're going to build off of that topic. And I'm excited to say that this topic is a listener suggestion. Yay! I love it. I love it I so much. I do apologize that it took us this long to get to this episode. Actually, we have done a listener suggestions in the past, but I forgot to mention it. So I'm doubly sorry today, listeners. <laughs> um, uh, medical debt was the listener suggested topic. And this got me thinking about, you know, basically the question that we'll get to today. So medical debt is something that is a problem kind of unique to this country. It is such a big problem that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, a government bureau, reported that there are $88 billion of outstanding medical debt currently in collections. So there are more. These are just the 88 billions with a B that are currently in collection. And uh, we can get into all the unsavory collection tactics some of these collection agency uses, and they're not fun. Uh, and this also has affect one in five Americans. So 20% of Americans have some sort of medical debt collection hounding them down, whether gentle or sometimes not so gently. Yeah, and there's many reasons for this, like why we have such a medical debt problem that we sort of touched about uh, in the last episode. Right, we've talked before about surprise billing, sort of things showing up on your bill that you weren't anticipating or being charged for things, right? Being out of network or, you know, you think you need to pay $100 for an emergency room visit, but 
then you also need to pay the physician and the labs and radiology exactly. and pharmacy mm-hmm. and it all <laughs> sort of adds up. We've talked previously about how people can be uninsured or underinsured. Maybe they don't have insurance through their employer, which most folks who have insurance in the U.S. are are based in an employment system. Maybe you can't afford it in the private market. Maybe you have insurance, but it's a high risk, sort of high deductible Not a good insurance. plan. And then we need healthcare and you have to pay a lot out of pocket before your insurance kicks in. Poverty is a perpetual problem in the United States where maybe you have insurance through your employer and you're doing all of the right things, but the bills that are coming through for medication or for diagnostics or if you become ill, it's more than you can afford. And that's a real problem. And then we have folks who might be on federal insurance through Medicaid or Medicare. And there are gaps either in the Medicaid gap where you make too much money for Medicaid, but not enough money. Wait. For subsidies. Yeah, you're right. Yes. But then not enough to sort of be covered in this system. Or on Medicare, you only get certain things covered. And if you don't have supplemental insurance, you might then be paying more out of pocket. Yeah. And also Medicare for now, only for people 65 and above. So if you're under 65, Medicare doesn't even apply to you. Which is a real consideration as to when I might retire. <laughs> That's, yeah, I think a lot of people uh, are basing it off of that when they when they can get insurance. Well, and you, we did, this is not specific to health insurance, but thinking about other things that folks can age into, Social Security keeps getting bumped back. Yes, yeah. Also. And this, again, we could do a whole episode on this, but folks don't have sufficient savings when they retire. And many folks are dependent upon Social Security, which may or may not be enough to make ends meet. But it's very hard for folks to save because everything is just so expensive and we are not structured in a way that can allow people to save if they have medical debt anyway. Yeah. And debt is something that annoying would be putting it lightly. But if you have debt and and people in collections are coming after you, it's a very annoying thing to deal with, to put it lightly. Yeah. It can impact your mental health and your physical health. It can lead to extra stress. It might lead you to end up losing your job if you are so stressed out. Yeah. It can have really negative impacts. I one time ended up in medical debt collections because I moved. And despite me changing my address, they continued to send bills to my old apartment. And it was not the mail was not being forwarded like it was supposed to. And this phone number kept calling my phone and not leaving a message. And finally, I answered and figured out that it was something from like 18 months prior that they'd been trying to get. And I just, A, leave a message. I know folks these days don't like to leave messages, but like leave a message. No, you should. If it's important, leave a message. And so it was, okay, fine. Like I have the resources. I was able to pay it. It wasn't an issue. But, you know, something as simple as moving and, you know, if you are housing insecure, for example, you might fall prey to falling into collections because you don't have a stable address. Address where folks can reach you. Yeah. And these are just tip of the iceberg of all the stuff that medical debt could put you under. And I think we mentioned this in the previous episode about healthcare that we often overestimate how much savings people have, right? So the Kaiser Family Foundation did a survey and they found that up to a third, possibly more of Americans, if you were to ask them, give me $2,000 in cash right now, they might not be able to do it. 
And I think people overestimate or people underestimate the financial impact that a small medical bill could have. You might think if you're in middle class, you might think, oh, it's just $800, just like pay it to make it go away. But $800 is a lot of money. That might be someone's groceries or rent or, you know, car payments and that they need to, you know, live to be able to function. So I think that's something that it's important to mention. So today we'll talk about the other component of this, which is why is healthcare so expensive in the United States? And it's a problem that is unique to the US. We don't see prices like this in any other comparable countries. This is a question that simultaneously has a very simple answer and a very complicated answer. Uh, What do you think the simple answer is? Well, we've talked about this a little bit, or at least we've alluded to it when thinking about the insurance industry, which is we are a for-profit system. Like the goal of folks who are providing healthcare, providing insurance, all these things, it is to make money. That is the simple answer. You got it on the nose. The US is the only country with a for-profit healthcare system amongst a long list of comparable nations. As a matter of fact, it is a for-profit driven healthcare system with very little regulation relative to other nations. So there are other nations where the insurance companies and the doctors are quote-unquote private entities, but because of the way that their laws are structured, they are not as free reign as they would have been in America. So for example, Germany, have a private insurance company, right? There's no public insurance in Germany, but they have regulation that sort of make that not a problem is is probably the best way to say it. Yeah. Well, and I think other comparable nations have different structures for becoming a physician in the first place. In the US, you pay out of pocket. You might be able to get some scholarships or some loan forgiveness, but you are largely paying out of pocket. And so there is incentive for you to make money to then pay those loans back in other countries, you are sort of being given a service, right? Your medical school training is covered. And then the expectation is that you're providing a service back to your country. That is correct. Depending on which medical school you go to, you might take out as much as half a million dollars in loans. There are some people who will never see half a million dollars of any sort of the money in their life, but that's some of the cost of going to medical school here. I will say there have been pushes for either subsidized tuition or just even no tuition at all, but we are still a very far away from achieving any sort of equity with other nations in terms of medical school costs. So that's the simple answer. We are the only for-profit healthcare system in the world uh, among comparable nations. But there's also a very complicated answer to why the US healthcare costs so much. If you ask 10 experts, chances are you will get the same simple answer. Like the simple answer is the same, right? It's a for-profit. But you'll probably get 10 very different theories about why, like about the details. There are papers, books, and I'm sure some grad student somewhere is working on a thesis (laughs) about this. Uh, We're going to go over some of the common themes about the complicated answers of why our costs are so much. Some of these you probably can anticipate listeners, but let's go through them one at a time. So the first one is administrative waste. And we alluded to this a little bit in talking about insurance and how much of the dollar is spent on it. But then you also think about the different administrative hoops folks have to go through that sort of stretch things out and make things more time consuming and more costly than they might otherwise be. One that folks might think about, but maybe aren't sort of thinking about this in the context of why things are so expensive, monopolies on on drugs, on supplies that are needed to make drugs or other equipment that is required, hospitals consolidating and making it um, so that hospital, they right? have control over things in the region or, or in the area. And so that can, those are a couple. A caveat I'll say about monopolies, uh, monopolies in quotes, like a practical monopoly. Like when I say monopoly, I don't mean that they are the only provider, but for all intents and purposes, because of either geography or market share, they're practically at the monopoly on 
whatever thing it is. So another thing that uh, this is a theory that's uh, a favorite amongst uh, public health and economists is that there are too many players in the U.S. healthcare system. There is pharmacies, there are the physicians, there are the nurses, there are the hospitals, which are not the same as physicians. Hospital employee physicians, but they are not exactly the same. There are the insurance companies, and there's the government. There's public insurance and private insurance, and obviously patients. There's so many different groups, all with different incentives, which means they are going to try to put themselves in a position of leverage so that they could pay the least amount. But by doing that, other groups are putting in position where they perhaps don't have that much leverage. And therefore, so as a result of all these misaligned incentives, you get higher cost. And we mentioned this already, but hospitals are for profit, a lot of them, which means that, uh, oh, here's a misconception I want to clear up. Just because something is nonprofit, like it doesn't mean that they can't generate revenue. Like the, the whole nonprofit just means whatever that revenue is generated doesn't go to shareholders. But a lot of hospitals have shareholders, which means the profit that the hospital generates is to return to the shareholder instead of going back into the hospital, which means they have an incentive to make as much money as possible. Um, and that drives up the cost. Tied into that is executive compensation. So these hospital systems have CEOs, they have other C-suite folks who are running these hospitals. Again, even in a nonprofit model, they're still trying to make money so that they can function as an organization. And often, particularly in for-profit hospitals and hospital systems, what the executives make is many, many, many times higher than what some of the physicians make. And even then again, with the uh, sort of the lowest paid workers in those organizations. It's also important to think about variability. So there is extreme variability price, sort of what something costs is not standard. And partly that makes sense because there are geographic differences in cost of living. And so sure, you need to account for those things. But when you have prices that are maybe not based on cost of living and just based on what you think the market can stand, that can lead to high variability in price. But we also know that there are differences in usage, who uses a thing. And if you buy the, a fancy new machine, and if not a lot of folks are using it, then you need to drive the price up to account for the cost of that new machine. Yeah. And shout out to the Dartmouth Atlas project and also Atul Gawande for writing about this. But they discovered essentially the variability sometimes is like disturbingly bad. So for example, in one town in Texas, uh, they may use the CT scanner X number of times, but literally in the town over for God knows whatever reason, even though they're serving similar population, they use the CT machine like 10 times more. And then these are variability based on localized incentives that the hospital, that particular hospital has. And this also happens in diagnosis. Like some hospitals, because of their culture or academic training, they are more likely to diagnose a certain condition than other hospitals. And you're like, how is this a thing? Isn't medicine just science? Isn't medicine just the same everywhere? <gasps> no. no, it's an art. That's why it's called practicing. <laughs> yeah. You practice medicine. Yeah, it's not the same. And guess what? Different medical schools train different types of doctors. Different teaching hospitals train different types of doctors. And a particular teaching hospital, they might do things a certain way than another teaching hospital. And therefore, you see high variability in diagnosis and even practice. Another issue is high utilizers where 
a small percentage of the population uses way more healthcare than the average. And this is because, not always, but this is because we don't really take good care of those people, right? So the classic example is an unhoused individual who end up in the emergency room constantly because they are unhoused. And when you're unhoused, things happen to you. And the cheaper option, I think we mentioned this in a, in our one of our housing videos, the cheaper option in the long run is to provide them the stuff that they need so that they could function and so that they could not be on the streets all the time. But no, like we will continue to put them in the emergency room, despite the fact that, that those high utilizers continuously drive up costs. I think we've talked a little bit about this previously on the show, but healthcare is not a commodity. Thank you. Healthcare is not a commodity like other things. If I go to the grocery store and think, wow, this is too expensive. Let me shop around to see where I can get it. Or if I go to the mall and I like an item, I can shop around, even go on Amazon and see if I can get it cheaper. Healthcare doesn't work that way. If you have a medical emergency, you go to the hospital. You might, you know, if you have two that are close by, sure, you might be able to choose. But if you get into an ambulance, there are protocols for where you go, for example. You don't get a say. (laughs) Right. There's leverage that the healthcare system has over people. We might say, you know, oh, we want people to behave rationally in this system and we want them to do X, Y, or Z things. But this is not a rational system. And so we are forcing people to receive treatment in certain places or uh, at certain expenses without really giving them the option to, to shop around. And doctors are paid a lot more here. We've talked about this also. This is a touchy subject. <laughs> we, which, it, you know, as you mentioned, you can take out a lot of debt in order to obtain your medical degree, whether it's an MD or a DO. And then when you are practicing medicine, you then need to get paid enough that you can pay that off. And there aren't enough physicians already. And so it has to be appealing for folks. And so we pay them more here than they get paid elsewhere. But elsewhere, they are less likely to be paying for their tuition. So we've sort of created a system where we are (laughs) having to pay people more because they are then paying for their own training. Yes. Again, touchy subject, because every time I bring this up, all the doctors I know are like, whoa, we work so hard and we pay so much. I know. I know. If you're a doctor listening to this, I know you work hard. I know you went through a lot and I know you deserve the compensation that you deserve. But, you know, we're talking about a a systemic issue here. So, you know, bear with us. Um, Anyway, uh, next, we have attempted in the past to come up with solutions to fix this problem. But because of how fragmented our system is, any solution that you come up with, it's not as effective because they can only apply to a certain fragment of that system. So if I say I want to overhaul Medicare, well, Medicare only applies to people 65 and over, or I want to overhaul like this. Well, does the states want to do this? Because the federal government might not have the power to do certain things. And if the states doesn't want to do this thing, then states don't do those things. And highly fragmented nature of our system means that doing any sort of solution is difficult. And a whole bunch of other things that we didn't get to talk about that drives up uh, healthcare. It's very complicated is what we're trying to emphasize. And we could spend all week talking about these details and theories uh, different people have different theories, of course. What I want to finish the episode is with the answer to this question from the opposite perspective. Why is healthcare and drugs so much cheaper in other countries? And this question is much easier to answer. And the answer is regulations. That's the answer. 
they all have some form of policy or laws that set a hard cap on what things can cost. So some do it directly, like Canada directly said insulin can cost this much and you cannot exceed that. That's what Canada does. Some people uh, have uh, what's called like a, a global budget system. Where they put a hard price cap on a group of services that uh, the hospitals, if they go over, they have to eat the cost. The Netherlands, Dutch, the Netherlands. Yes, the Netherlands do this. The Netherlands does this. What did I say? <laughs> Netherlands have an S. They they do this in the Netherlands. They do this in the Netherlands. Um, some uses budgetary restrictions. Some make sure that the insurance are nonprofit and they set like policy floors like Germany. So even though Germany has a bunch of private insurance, they are regulated in such a way that they essentially are public insurance. Like they make sure that you must provide these services. You must set these uh, standards of insurance. Otherwise, we won't let you operate like you won't give your your license. Yeah, and that's the simple answer. The reason why healthcare costs are so cheap everywhere else is because they have some form of regulations. And in the US, we don't have those regulations. That's the simple answer. So I I hope that by answering this from the other perspective, why things are cheaper in other countries, we could start to get a sense of like why things are so expensive here. Thinking about the drug price piece, I think we'll probably need to do a whole episode on this. But oh, there's yes, a lot of tension, and I'll just mention this briefly. In order to develop a new drug, there are a lot of things that go into that. Some of it is prior research. Some of it is exploratory research, you know, and, and then you need to develop and, and test all of these pieces. And drug companies say, well, we spend a lot of time and money to develop and test this and to get approval for it. So, you know, for the next 10 years, we can really charge whatever we want for this thing. But just like everything else, things are not done in isolation. The prior research is often federally funded. The exploratory research is often federally funded. And so, yes, pharmaceutical companies are spending time, money, and resources, other resources on developing these drugs, but they're not the only ones who have invested in it. Yeah. And so we need Taxpayer to be dollars, yeah. right, right. We as a public are funding the creation of a thing that a private company is then going to make lots and lots of money off of. So and one last thing, I will do a whole big pharma episode because we absolutely have to. But one more thing I'll say about that is big pharma's decision to make the drug is not based on like altruism, right? If there's two drugs, one is a drug that can help a lot of people but won't make so much money, like antibiotics, because you use a course of antibiotics and it's over. Or they can invest in a drug that people have to take for life. Just the decision of what drugs they're going to develop is influenced by profit. And that's something that you need to take into consideration. In the next installment of this series, you will examine more detail about this high cost of healthcare uh, system of ours, particularly the drug component and its impact. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. New episodes are released Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Please give us a rating and a review. It helps the show immensely. Send us questions or comments to everythingispublichealth at gmail.com. Reach out if you think we've missed an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic. For now, you can still follow us on Twitter at everythingisph or Instagram at everythingispublichealth. You can also find me on Twitter for now at Dr. Krufasi. More information regarding this episode can be found in the show notes below. Listeners, we have a Patreon page that is also our website. Visit the site for all major updates and bonus material, especially now that Twitter is going away. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can support us on our Patreon page as well. You can find the link for that in the episode description below. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health. <laughs>